Okay, we're continuing in uh, Luke chapter 12. Um, we're in the context of Jesus uh, providing careful, pointed, direct teaching to his disciples uh, regarding what it means to follow him. Uh, we, we can say that basically what he's doing is teaching them what it means to be a Christian. And, uh, and this is in light of the fact that he's on his way to Jerusalem. This is the greater scene in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has turned toward Jerusalem. He's let people know, although they don't quite understand it, that he's heading to Jerusalem there to be betrayed and crucified and raised from the dead. Now that, you can imagine, that would befuddle them. But he's let them know that this is his purpose. And while on the way, a crowd is gathering. We saw last week that it could be as many as tens of thousands uh, that are now following him on his way to Jerusalem. And he is taking the time uh, to teach the disciples. Uh, and so the, a good question to start off right at the very beginning is, what does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, that's a great question. We could start almost every sermon with that. And the question can be answered simply. And we American Protestants of the 21st century often answer it simply and quickly. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Uh, but anyone who is a Christian or, or who's been at it for a while knows that there's more to it than that. Uh, there's such a thing as a false profession. Uh, there's such a thing as hypocrisy. And so for the last two weeks, the touch point upon which Jesus is building his teaching uh, is the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the super-religious people uh, of their day. Uh, and to be a Christian, Jesus says, is pointedly uh, to avoid that hypocrisy. So two weeks ago, uh, we saw Jesus pick a fight uh, with the Pharisees over lunch, uh, and he uh, spoke to them about their outward displays of righteousness compared to their inward disregard of the basics of justice and the love of God. They were scrupulous in internal demonstrations of godliness so that they looked good, uh, but they missed the forest for the trees. And Jesus' amusing illustration was that they were like washing the outside of the cup but not washing the inside. If it's your turn to do the dishes in your home and you only wash the outside of the cup, you might, write, you might rightly come under the criticism of those who live with you. Uh, it would be a dumb exercise. Um, last week, we saw Jesus explicitly teaching the disciples that they should be on their lookout for the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees, that contaminant, which is hypocrisy. He told them to stop pretending to fear God rather than man and to confess him readily and publicly as a guard against that hypocrisy. So those passages and this one all hold together and there, there's more to come, but it, it's all centering in on, again, what it means to be a real Christian. Um, there is a passage I want to make a quick reference to in Mark's gospel. Uh, it's, the same, it's a similar context. It's correlative teaching. In dispute with the Pharisees, uh, Jesus differentiates between external and internal things causing defilement. So we're already on the topic of external versus internal with the Pharisees outside of the cup and inside of the cup, being on the lookout for hypocrisy. But in Mark 7, 20 to 23, uh, Jesus says to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. 
uh, for from within, out of the heart. And he's talking to them about, you know, the fact that they were, they were saying that what you ate would defile you. And he says, it's not what goes into your body that defiles you, but what comes out. For, for from within, out of the heart of man, come, and he has this colorful list. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Well, it's interesting, I think, just to pick apart that list. Evil thoughts come from within. Then he says sexual immorality, uh, which is a violation of the seventh commandment. Theft, a violation of the eighth commandment. Murder, a violation of the sixth commandment. Adultery, again, the seventh commandment. It gets two mentions. Coveting, the tenth commandment. And then a bunch of internal dispositions, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness surrounding slander, which is a violation of the ninth commandment. Now, I don't want to preach a sermon on that passage, but I'm tempted to. Uh, All of these, interestingly, Jesus says, come from within, and that's what defiles you. You know, the question would be, if, if if you could, could you rank these? Sometimes Christians get into conversations about worse and worser sins, bad and worse sins. Uh, I think you'd be foolish to try to rank them. You'd be wise not to try. Uh, But here's the point. We tend naturally to emphasize the things that we can see while giving a pass to the things that we don't. And more to the point regarding the Pharisees, we tend to judge according to what we can see. Those sexually immoral, those thieves, those liars, without the introspection that will in fact level the playing field. And, and I, I say all of this in a lead into this passage this morning because it's about covetousness and we should pay very close attention to this thing that hides in our hearts that is not visible. And so let me read this passage uh, to you. I'm starting in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. Uh, Here is what uh, the Word of God says. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul... Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, 
For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why, do you, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you're to eat, what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Thus far the reading of God's Word. I want to look uh, briefly at the three things that, uh, that present themselves in the passage, the demand and then the parable and then the follow-up. Uh, first, let's look at the demand and we'll, we'll just do this quickly. Um, this, this guy shouts out in the crowd, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Uh, He's not really requesting arbitration. Uh, He's actually demanding that Jesus get on his side. Uh, He's demanding that Jesus implement his plan. Uh, Jesus is wise enough to see through that. Uh, The man thinks he's asking for justice, but really he's full of greed. And that's one of the ironies of the Pharisees. They presented themselves as the most godly of all, as a cut above the rest of the religious people, the rest of the Jews, They said, we're really the religious ones, but they were marked by their greed. So back in chapter 11, we saw uh, Jesus say, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, uh, as Jesus is going to point out. So the main point uh, Jesus takes uh, from this guy's demand is he says to the people listening to him, uh, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Uh, This follows a similar warning on hypocrisy. If you remember from last week, he says, be on your guard against hypocrisy. Watch out for it. It is hidden. It will jump up and grab you by the throat. The same thing with covetousness. It will sneak up on you. I, I saw a minister on YouTube who pointed this out, that, that no one commits adultery without knowing it. You don't say, wait a minute, you're not my wife. But you can commit greed. You can be greedy, you can be covetous without even knowing it. It can sneak up on you, it can grab your heart. So Jesus turns to them and then tells them a parable. The land produced, it's interesting to kind of pick apart the actual words. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. The man himself didn't produce, but the land produced and then this man calls these, this production of the land uh, my crops. And uh, the relentless assertion of the first 
of the uh, first-person pronouns just really overwhelms you. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will store my grain. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods. Whenever I see a string of I wills together like that, I think of Isaiah 14, uh, where the fall of Satan is described with a string of five I wills. I will do this. It's the assertion of autonomy. It's the assertion of the self. So there are two things that are going on here. Number one, he absolutely disregards God. Uh, and, and, and we have to be careful about the way that we look at this because in our society, in our culture, uh, it is a wise thing to put money aside uh, for a rainy day, for an emergency. And, and we're actually in a unique position historically that we're setting aside funds for retirement. Now, you know, whether or not the wisdom of retirement, you can think about that and talk about it another time, it is what happens in our culture. It is what happens in our society, and there are a lot of different factors that play into that. So people are wise to set aside. Uh, but that's not what this guy is doing. And, and even when you are setting aside, you need to be careful about greed. You need to be careful about coveting. Uh, you know, Jesus said, be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. There's more than one kind of covetousness. So this is not to speak against saving, but it is to note that what the guy is doing. And his, the second big issue here, not only is he disregarding God with his savings, as you and I are prone to do with our savings, but he's also disregarding the community. Uh, Ambrose, St. Ambrose from way, way back, said that this rich man has plenty of storage available to him in the mouths of the needy. Uh, He converses with himself because he has no friends, and that's not an insignificant point. And what he's doing is storing up what might rightly uh, be shared with the community. And the reason that he's storing it up is probably because he wants to wait until the prices go back up in a lean year. So he is purposely disadvantaging the community and explicitly disadvantaging the poor uh, with his storage. Uh, God then requires the repayment of the loan of his life. His life is on loan to him. This night your soul is required of you. Now it's time to pay up. A time lapse between verses 19 and 20 is assumed, uh, and Jesus concludes that by saying, the one who lays up treasure for himself with no regard for the poor is a fool, and and that fits into the larger concerns of Luke. Uh, The care of the poor is a big one. Jesus said uh, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, this is in chapter 4, in his inaugural sermon, because he's anointed me. Uh, to preach the good news to the poor. And that concern goes throughout. So Jesus says this in response to a man who is greedy for his inheritance, demanding that Jesus come through for him and take his side in it. And he says, you better watch out. Watch out for the way that you're thinking about your stuff. And he tells this parable about the guy who is stocked up And the Lord comes to him, requires his life from him, and he is shown to be a fool. So, then the follow-up. 
And this is the bulk of the passage. Um, There are many different kinds of coveting. One kind of coveting uh, is avarice. It's acquiring more and more wealth. You never have enough. You always think, I'm going to get a little bit bigger. I'm going to get a little bit better. One more thing, maybe a few more things. Isn't it the American way to grow in wealth? And it gets out of hand. And one kind of coveting is avarice, acquiring more and more, often at the expense of others. But there are other kinds of coveting. And another kind of coveting is anxiety about your life. So that's what Jesus says. After he tells the parable, he turns to his disciples in verse 22. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. So one of the ways that you could be anxious about your life is about your lack of wealth. You could think to yourself, I don't have enough. I need more. And you worry about it, you fret about it, uh, you scheme about it. Now, people who are wise know that it is universally the disposition of the human heart to say, I don't have enough. And it's amazing to me to meet people on the next tier. You know, I think if I had as much as that guy had, I would be content. But when I get to talking to him, it turns out he's not content with what he's got. He's looking at the guy the next, next step up the ladder. And so wise know that it is a universal condition of the human heart always to want more and that contentment does not come at a certain income level or at a certain savings level. To think if I get to that level, I will finally be content. That's not where contentment comes from. Another kind of covening in verses 27 and 28 has to do with beauty. What you aware, what you wear, how you are arrayed. You can be worried about that. You can fret about it. You can be anxious about it. And you can give yourself to beauty the same way you give yourself to wealth in a way that betrays faith. And, it, and not only does it betray faith, it, it betrays God himself. It betrays who he is. And again, those who are wise know that beauty is much more subtle than the clothes you wear. Another way of fretting, another way of being anxious about your life uh, is to concern yourself with the span of life. In verses 25 and 26, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? This is a great contradiction of most of what we read in the pa- in the, in the, on the internet, in the paper, I was about to say, I'm old, uh, concerning health and well-being. Because everything in the, in the, on the internet about health and well-being says, if you will do this, you will live longer. If you will fret, you will live longer. And I don't want to get into big discussion of statistics. But we are among men most to be pitied if we live by statistics. Uh, Jesus says very clearly, uh, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? So there are many kinds of coveting. And Jesus says, be on the lookout for them all. And the real issue, and this is an important one, the real issue is the issue of faith versus anxiety. It's not about how to get what you want. 
It's not, it's not saying, well, you know, if I don't worry, then I really will get everything that I need. That's the best track to get what I need is to follow Jesus' advice here. It's not that. Don't distort the passage. It's good to remember when you read this so that you won't be shocked when it happens, but sometimes people starve, believers included. Sometimes people lack what we would call necessities, believers included. Did the passage fail? Probably not. In fact, I'd want to stand pretty firmly on the fact that the Word of God never fails. So how are we to understand this? Some people curse God in their lack, in their want. Uh, But those who have faith, real faith, praise God in their lack and in their want. And even in their desperate want, they can say, the Lord is my shepherd and I have everything that I need. I put on a playlist for Sunday mornings. And uh, having thought through the sermon, uh, I was wandering around the house, and uh, the song came on, Whate'er My God Ordains Is Right. And, uh, and thinking through the lyric of that song, it was the song of the person who finds himself in a desperate situation, finds himself in a situation where the promises don't look like they're being kept, uh, but he is comforted in his faith, he is comforted in his conviction that whate'er his God ordains is right. So what's the difference between cursing God in your want and praising God in your want? You know, what's the difference between when you're not getting what you need, shaking your fist at God and saying, you are not fulfilling your end of the deal, and on the other hand, the person that says that in the midst of dire straits, God is faithful. I think I've told you the story before. I haven't been here long enough to repeat stories, but I'm doing it. Because it was so, so impactful, but there was a couple in our church, uh, good friends, they were both counselors. Uh, this is in Winston-Salem many, many moons ago, and they had a son who was uh, desperately disadvantaged. And uh, many, many hospital trips, uh, all kinds of things wrong with him that were going to impact him his whole life. And I remember going in and visiting them in the hospital, and I always think of this passage, you know, where uh, the psalmist says, the Lord has heard the cry of the afflicted. And I said, is it true, this passage, that the Lord has heard the cry of the afflicted? And I never forget her looking at me. She looked at me, her husband echoed, but she said, oh, yes, it's very true. The Lord has heard the cry of the afflicted. And this is where Jesus really wants you to start thinking about what it means to be a Christian, and what the cash value of faith is. Uh, he plays with the word seek uh, in order to make the point. In verse 29, do not seek what you're to eat, what you're to drink, nor be worried. I think I should say another distortion of this passage is the person who flippantly quits work and says the Lord will provide. You know, that's not only foolish, but it's wicked if God has given you work to do. But here, seeking is equated with worrying. Don't seek what you're to eat, what you're to drink, nor be worried. That's what everybody does, he says. All the nations of the world, in verse 30, seek after these things. 
and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. So maybe a good way to understand what he's getting at with seeking is to ask the question, to what or in what direction are your principal energies expended? Seeking after food and clothing in verse 29 is equated to worrying, what everyone in the world does. And worrying's a big problem. This is a problem. I mean, we, we think about it, you know, kind of casually. You know, I, I have a life where I worry quite a bit. You know, someone has told me that recently, that that's kind of the nature of life. Uh, but, but being anxious for nothing is a command. It's a command just like the Ten Commandments. And you can't say that it is my habitual practice to lie, nor can you say it's my habitual practice to worry and be anxious. Jesus says, your father knows that you need them. He says, you're to be different. I love that, the cotton patch version of the New Testament. Have you ever seen that? Southern colloquialisms. For be holy, for I the Lord am holy, is translated or paraphrased, y'all be different. For I the Lord am different. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Y'all be different. The whole world is going after these things. The whole world is worried. You be different, and he says, rather than expending your inner energies, your principal energies on what you eat or what you drink, expend your principal energies on the kingdom of God, which was described earlier as justice and the love of God, which the Apostle Paul describes in a succinct phrase that I love, that the kingdom of God is neither eating nor drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Put all of your efforts, at least your principal efforts, towards righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom has been mentioned quite a bit in these chapters. I don't have time to mention all of, that, all of them, but it's a big deal. It was preached on earlier. But when you get to verse 32, you really, you hear the heart of Jesus. He called them my friends back in verse 4. And this is where you can see that even though this teaching is rigorous, even though it's meant to cut to the quick, even though it's meant to expose hypocrisy, Jesus really loves his disciples. He says, fear not, little flock. The only time in the New Testament that phrase, little flock, is used. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The Father will give you the things that you need. He knows that you need them. He's going to give them to you. But more, it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I remember being arrested by John Piper's book many years ago, The Pleasures of God. He just did a great job kind of reshaping my brain around the idea that God takes pleasure in certain things. There are certain things that please God, that, he's, that he enjoys, that he is, uh, I don't want to be flippant, that he's tickled by, that he, he really likes doing it. And one of the things that he takes pleasure in, that brings him delight, is to give you and me the kingdom. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see, you can see him pulling us back to the Lord's Prayer. Uh, when you pray, pray, our Father, 
in heaven. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Therefore, sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart uh, be also. This in distinction or in contrast to the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So generosity is what's in view. The, 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 the counter to covetousness, the counter to anxiety. If you want to stop being anxious, it's hard to stop something, but do something. Be generous. And generosity is, it's a, it's a wonderful category. Uh, it is a gauntlet. It's a challenge. It's a gift. And it's proof of the disposition of your heart, all wrapped up into one. And it doesn't simply have to do with money. I think it also has to do with the generosity of spirit. Because it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, this Father whom you can trust, you can be generous. You can stop being tight-fisted. You can stop having pursed lips and grave concern over the misdeeds of your friends. You can be generous. Uh, The Apostle Paul echoes Jesus in 1 Timothy 6. I think it's worth reflecting on that. It's also the Word of God. Uh, You might know the passage. Uh, Paul is instructing Timothy to teach those who are rich in the present age. And I would say that those who are rich in the present age is every one of us in this room. If you have a worldwide standard. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So Paul again making the same point. So that's, that's the passage. And I, I just want to say, you know, in conclusion, that covetousness is such a big deal that it is marked at a couple places in the Bible as a turning point. It can become a turning point. Now, again, I think that we tend to focus so much of our attention on the things that we can see, on the visible, and, and, and I would say quick to judge the things that we can see without reflecting on the reality of the disposition of our hearts. But in Luke 18, hopefully we'll get there, uh, a rich ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus lists the fifth through the ninth commandments. He says, honor your parents, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery. And, uh, and the man says, uh, I've kept all those. I've done all of that. And then Jesus goes to the tenth commandment. One thing you lack, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. Really gets to the heart. And that man, it is said, is saddened and walks away. But it's a turning point in his life in that he gets to see the real disposition of his heart. You know, he thought he was something spiritually. I've kept all those commandments. And Jesus said, then think about the tenth. And hopefully, (laughs) that new awareness was productive. 
The Apostle Paul recounts similarly in Romans 7 that he was happily ignorant of his lost state. He was obeying all the commands flawlessly. That's the way he describes it in Philippians. Uh, But in Romans 7, he, he tells us that the tenth commandment came to life. Do not covet sprang into his sensibilities. It came crashing into his life and he realized that he was a coveter on many, many different levels. All kinds of covetous sprang, sprang to life. And that's when he cried out for mercy. That's the way he describes it. And that's when he was justified by faith. So I think all of us can kind of take a step back on this issue and ask the question, you know, could I be like Paul? I'll put it to you. Can you be like Paul? Or the rich young ruler, imagining that all is well between you and the Lord, while secretly holding fast to your real gods, your wealth and your security, maybe your beauty. Now, I know, or I would assume, that many in the room are very generous. But I would also assume that many in the room are not generous at all. And this is a good reference point for you. It will give you access to God's grace and mercy. Ask yourselves, am I generous? Do I have generosity of spirit as well as generosity with my purse? Ask your spouse, ask your friends, are we generous? Are our lives marked by generosity? Are they marked by this firm conviction that is our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom? Well, if you find yourself to be ungenerous, you wouldn't be the first. And I would simply say, lay it down. Lay it down. Repent. Come to Christ. He's the lover of your soul. Tell him what you need. Tell him what it is that you really seek or what you want to seek. And he will certainly, by his own promise, hear that prayer and give you what you're asking for. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is hard to hear uh, Jesus pointing out uh, these things that um, mostly in polite society we don't want to discuss or we want to keep hidden. We want to say that's private. Uh, But he is the lover of our souls to such a degree uh, that he won't let us get away with that. Uh, So the scripture says that the Holy Spirit is given uh, to convict the world of sin. And Jesus promised that you would give the Holy Spirit if we asked you. So please give us the Spirit that our lives will not be unexamined, that we will begin to address worry, anxiety, fear, uh, to the same degree that we address the externals by which we appear good uh, to others. Father, we want so much uh, for the integrity that is the mark of the gospel. Uh, We want so much to be rid of hypocrisy. Uh, Would you please give us that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.